Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. A year and a half ago, Michael Saylor very graciously invited me to stay in his beautiful house in Miami Beach. I thought long and hard about what kind of gift I could get somebody like Michael Saylor. Well, there is nobody like Michael Saylor, but what can you get for somebody like Michael Saylor? I thought long and hard and I decided I could probably uh, make something special happen if I got him a pile of Austrian economics books. And so, indeed, I ordered a bunch of Austrian economics books from the Mises Institute and had them delivered to his address. And I thought, you know, he, found, he had expressed sympathy and interest in Austrian ideas before. 
And I'm sure that with a stack of Austrian books in front of him, he's going to find something interesting in the work of Rothbard, Mises, Hayek, and all the rest of them. And I would definitely be very interested in finding out what Michael Saylor thinks about these works. Well, he took the bait. <laughs> he picked up <laughs> Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, a 1,700-page monster of a book, a great book by Murray Rothbard. And he read it. And a year after uh, that visit, I saw him again, and he told me he read that book, and he was extremely impressed with it. He enjoyed it a lot. And he had so many wonderful ideas to share about what was in that book. So I'm inviting Michael here today to join us and discuss this book. And we're also inviting Patrick Newman, who is a fellow at the Mises Institute and a professor of economics at the University of Tampa and the editor of the fifth and final volume of Rothbard's book. Rothbard had only written the fifth volume by hand and the publishing house which had published the first four went out of business. But the fifth volume, nobody could decipher Molly Rothbard's handwriting. And so for many years, it just lay there as an indecipherable notebook until Patrick Newman showed up at the Mises Institute and spent an entire summer learning how to decipher Molly Rothbard's handwriting and then was able to transcribe uh, the fifth volume from Rothbardese to English and translate it from Rothbardese to English. And thanks to him, we have the fifth volume. So... Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to meet you, Patrick. Looking forward to this discussion. Safe. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and uh, nice to meet you as well, Michael. All right, so to begin with, Michael, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm just going to give you the ball and let you run. Uh, <laughs> what did you think of Conceived in Liberty? Well, so first, you know, I want to say for the record, I got all these books and I stacked them on my uh, end table <clears throat> in my uh, in my uh, bedroom in Miami Beach, and it was a lot of books and uh, they were very tall. And uh, first I tried to ignore them, and then I went and I started thumbing through them, and uh, it was a bit daunting. But um, before I actually uh, did conceived in liberty. I actually uh, read an Austrian perspective on the history of economic thought by Rothbard. And, uh, and so that kind of traced from 2000 BC forward all of the, um, all of the economic thinkers. And, uh, and it was kind of a story of someone comes up with a good economic idea, they get smashed down. Someone else comes up with a, a good economic idea that's rational, let people keep their stuff. They get smashed down. Someone else comes along. Every hundred years, there's an intelligent person in some country or some civilization that points out that if you don't steal all the property from all the people and crush them to death, it'll be good for morale and you might actually grow the economy. And and always there's a little fire, and then they always get smashed down, and it goes on and on and on and on and on, all the way you know up through, you know uh, Locke and and uh, the liberal ideas of the uh, of uh, you know Reformation Europe, and after I finished that, you know, and that uh, and that's kind of you know it's it's inspirational but depressing both at the same time. Rothbard does a really good job of pointing out to you that there are intelligent, rational people for thousands and thousands of years, and generally they come to no good end. <laughs> but 
and and he has you know the guy's a saint because he must have had so much um passion and uh so much energy to be able to slog through and do the research and write these stories because because you know normally in hollywood we'd like to see the story of the protagonist you know or the hero that uh struggles against adversity and wins and rothbard you know, kind of writes a thousand examples of the hero that struggles against adversity, almost wins, and then has, you know, defeat hammered down by some ignorant, you know, like they'll spend 40 years cultivating the the next king of France, teaching him everything about intelligent economics and liberalism. And the guy's about to about to take over control of the country and then he dies of a disease in four weeks accidentally and they they're stuck with the next guy who knows nothing so that's the story of of thousands of years of economic thought and then i i got to conceived in liberty and i was very interested in that because as an american uh most americans are our um our study of history consists of some europeans came to the new world they uh, colonized. Everything was good until the British treated them shabbily, and then they threw off the reins of tyranny, and here we are. <laughs> and uh, it's generally very simple. And uh, there's a American Revolution. And you think that uh, the, the history before is, is oftentimes homogeneous, or if they tell you the story, it's a very summarized narrative. They've reduced it down to one paragraph. So, you know, so Murray Rothbard uh, offers this book, and it is comprehensive. I mean, the, the first four volumes are 262 chapters, and it's 262 chapters of, of um, aspiration and ego and self-preservation driving some people uh to uh to go to the new world to try to establish a better life and then uh every single one of the stories is is either a struggle against tyranny a struggle against adversity and uh and ultimately power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely you know and uh and and uh then the people uh all being uh, abused, eventually uh, abused so badly that they rebel, with most of the rebellions failing. But, uh, you know, first they flee the tyranny, and then they rebel, and then most of the rebellions fail. But uh, this, entire, uh, this entire colonial experiment is this crucible of, it's a crucible of experimentation where you've got some liberal ideas and some aspiration that's planted into, you know, a, a continent. And as you watch all of the different colonial experiments careen into each other and then strug struggle uh, internally, I mean, they're dominated by internal power struggles, external power struggles, Power struggles with the Indians, power struggles with the Europeans, power struggles between the European empires, and then power struggles uh, of domestic political nature, you know, in uh, in the in in the UK over and over again. 
you just you just see this careening chaos where ultimately you know the hero is the liberal philosophers the lockean figures that planted the idea of liberty in the minds of settlers and then the the unsung heroes that generally aren't written about they're struggling they're running from the tyrants all the time trying to live their life being interfered with and uh it's a it's 262 chapters of brutal pain and and struggle and uh and tragedy like uh a a tragedy of um you know of ego combined or wrapped with a comedy of errors that careens toward a final revolution or a final rebellion, the last one we remember, uh, and through that chaos rise a set of founding fathers that, that actually reflect the best values uh, that we've seen of a founding nation in a long, long time. And, thousands of years where you, you find a, you find a set of people that, that do embrace some of the ideology of Locke, the, some of the ideology of capitalism and establish a nation of, uh, or a country of checks and balances, but throughout, you know, uh, it's imperfect, corrupt and, uh, and chaotic and uncertain. And, uh, and you can't help but just sit back and marvel at this uh, crucible that incubated this uh, this nation that became an imperfect torchbearer for liberty. <laughs> and I look at the title, Conceived in Liberty, and I just think Murray Rothbard has such a dry sense of humor because he wrote 262 chapters about anything but liberty – Right. And, and so there are people that are sort of struggling for it, but they're just generally the ones getting beat to death the entire time until the nation arises. And it's, it's thought of as, you know, the greatest, uh, standard bearer of liberty. And, and, and truthfully, I suppose it is com- uh, compared to everything else, but I can't help but think that, you know, it's, this is the triumph of the least worst. Right. And uh, and that's my takeaway from it. And I we could talk about the 262 chapters. Right. I mean, it's it is 1700 pages and, and every one of the stories is gripping, blood curdling, fascinating. Right. It, you know, and every one of them make a great movie, you know, except so many of them kind of end with they end with the villains winning. And and the good guys crawling off or running off somewhere else to to lick their wounds and try again over and over and over again, which is probably why it wouldn't be commercial. But um, I thought uh, what was really useful about the entire book and and, you know, for the audience, I would say to everybody, you should read it. Right. And if you don't want to read it, you should download the audio book and you should listen to it. Because it's one of those things where at any age, whether you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, however, whatever point in life you are, listening to it grounds you back into the, the human struggle, you know, of, for sovereignty and freedom 
you know, versus tyranny and uh, and uh, the collective. And so I, th- I think it's very, very valuable to to read it. But um, I also think you can be lost in the hundreds and hundreds of chapters of struggle because there are just so many. And, uh, and it's always, you know, each one of them is about some, some decent group of people being beat up or abused or victimized by some arrogant, egotistical, power hungry tyrant that somehow thinks they know best. So, um, I, I think that the most constructive thing for a podcast like this is, um, Rather than dwell too much on the individual examples of, uh, of dysfunctional government, of which there are so many, it's more interesting to look at the insights that come out of the 262 chapters. And, and, and I will, uh, you know, disclaim, Patrick, I haven't read the fifth volume. Uh, my, uh, my, you know, study goes from, when the Europeans hit the shore and, and the conditions leading up to it all the way to the, uh, to the victory of, uh, of the Americans at Yorktown. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. I should say, um, what is one of the many astonishing things about this book is that I think if you were a historian and you produced this book over a 40-year career, this would be an incredibly successful career for any historian. I mean, if, if you were a U.S. historian or an economic historian and you came up with this book on its own and published approximately nothing else, this would still be a remarkably prolific and successful publication career. And Murray Rothbard did this plus dozens of other works uh, um, of similar size or even larger size. In He's incredibly world. productive. It's astonishing. And he did it all on the typewriters and with, um, uh, with his uh, pen. Um, and so history of economic thought is one of the most comprehensive histories of economic thought written. And his history of the U.S. is one of the most gripping and fascinating uh, histories of the U.S. written. 
And then there's all of his economics work, which is many, many thousands upon thousands of pages across books and journals. Um, Patrick, give us some of your insights into uh, into the volume overall and uh, what you think, what you thought of it. Oh, of course. Uh, Conceiving Liberty is a, is a great, it's a, it's a great history. Uh, it's been published many times. Rothbard originally wrote it in the 1960s, and then it was published in the 1970s around the 200-year anniversary of the American Revolution. And then the Mises Institute over the years has published a volume. Most recently, they have the whole volume one to four in one giant book that uh, if you've ever held it or, or held it while trying to read it, you're almost getting a workout while you're doing so. It's literally so big. And it's, it's, it's full of lots of information and you, it's absolutely a history of early America that I remember being taught to me in elementary school in my K through 12 education at a much more obviously superficial level. Uh, but some of the basics was still taught. I think it's very unfortunate the way history is often taught now that a lot of those details of the American Revolution and what was animating the, the founding fathers and the colonists are, have sort of been uh, uh, revised, you could say. And it, 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 it's incredible, as Safedine pointed out, is that Rothbard was, uh, he, he had many, many research interests. He was a polymath as in, in, in many ways in that he wrote this giant book on economics, man, economy, and state. Then he wrote this giant book on early American history. Then he wrote this giant book on the history of economic thought and so on. And that's only just sort of a fraction of what he wrote of the books he wrote. He wrote a book on the Great Depression. He wrote a book on libertarian ethics. He wrote a, a lot of stuff. And as Savadine pointed out, someone's entire career could just be on early American history. And they would publish this four-volume book or this five-volume book, and that would be sort of the, the capstone of their career. And for Rothbard, it was really only just one of his many uh, voluminous contributions. And it's, it's absolutely a, a, a series that I recommend people read uh, or listen to the audiobook. Um, I myself, have been, you know, in, the, in, the, in the fifth volume, have written a, a shortened overview of, of, of the book. Uh, of, of volumes one through four, but it's 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 I think it's very very important. It's very important to understand uh, how the the country was founded and all of the struggles. As as Michael pointed out, very often when you speak truth to power, <laughs> power comes and gets you, right? The the intellectuals and the sort of the the the, the radicals fighting for liberty and decentralization and in free markets, they they can often live an ostracized life. Uh, they're, they're sort of shut out from the halls of power. They don't have the most prestigious jobs or they don't have all the political connections. And that's because they're a threat as Rothbard. One, Rothbard himself was a threat. And as he's described throughout his, his, his book through Conceived in Liberty, uh, various people, when they were threats, <laughs> they, get, they get ostracized. Uh, various intellectuals, when they're threats, they get ostracized. And so much of American history is built on people who were ostracized, but they basically kept on persevering. And I think that's a very important insight that we, we can't forget um, that's just really revealed through so much of the, of, 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 of the information that Rothbard provides in his book. I wrote down, you know, about 
a bit more than a dozen, 16 interesting points that I took out of the book that uh, that are illustrated by the hundreds and hundreds of examples. And I thought that might be a, a, a useful framework for us to discuss. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I mean, I'll start with a, a big idea. You know, my, if you said summarize the book, I'd say, okay, the summary of the book is history is the story of the triumph of more powerful currencies, religions, cultures, and governments over less powerful competitors. It's really a triumph of power. And um, when you look at all of the stories and you, and you try to make sense of it, like why did that happen the way it happened? Ultimately, it's just the triumph. You know, humans have a will to power and it's a triumph of power. And the more powerful entity displaces the less powerful entity and the competition is going on in the religious domain, the economic domain, the physical domain, the you know, all these domains, all the, the ideological domain all the time. And um, we could start, you know, start with a, an interesting observation, right? Currency, right? We all know currency is a unit of account, uh, a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a system of control, right? I love those four, right? Very interesting. Well, um, religion, religion is a unit of moral account, a medium of indoctrination, a store of values, and a system of control. And a government, if it's going to be effective, generally it, it, you, you want the religion to channel political power just like you want the currency to channel economic power. And the point of the government is to channel physical power. And the government is also, it's a, it's this, you know, unit of cultural account and it's a, it's a method of education and violence. It's a store of culture. It's a system of control. And so throughout human history, the governments find themselves more powerful if they adopt a religion and some religions are better at channeling political power than others and oftentimes you find that you know if you're the leader of a country and you want to get a million people to do what you want them to do just saying do it because i told you to do it doesn't work that well but if you you know if you if you can enlist them in an ideology right Religion is the original political party, and, and the secular version of a religion is a political party, right? That's when we replaced religion, we replaced it with the Communist Party, or we replaced it with, uh, with you know, the Socialist Party or some other party. But ultimately, throughout history, and if you look at all these stories, religion plays a big part in, in each of the colonies, and, uh, and generally... Uh, a lot of these struggles are, are one colony versus another and one religious, uh, group versus another religious group. But, you know, this is, uh, lapsing back into history in general. You just, you find that, uh, you know, throughout history, thousands and thousands and thousands of times, the way that someone consolidates power is they all agree on, uh, a state religion. The religion has ritual, uh, we're all going to meet, you know, every Sunday on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, on a Sunday, on a whatever. We're all going to recite the same mantras. We're all going to agree on the same values. 
you're going to participate. Since we all agree on the same values, we agree the people that don't share our values are the enemy. And uh, very rapidly, as soon as you distinguish one group from another group, it's a very short hop to, and therefore we can seize their property, and therefore we should kill them because they won't give us their property. And, and so uh, economic tyranny followed by, um, followed by abuse, followed by war, uh, it, it normally follows from these religious distinctions. And, um, you know, if, if I look at conceived in, in liberty, what's fascinating is you got to watch hundreds of experiments in political economy <clears throat> take place over about 200 years. And, um, and, and so there wasn't one. You, you had this, um, you had, you had this, um, continent, right? Which was very special. It was a very fertile piece of land. On the south is a desert. On the north is tundra. To the west is an uncrossable ocean, the Pacific, just utterly impossible to cross. On the east, it took thousands of years, and eventually uh, the Europeans figured out how to cross it, and it was very difficult. In fact, logistics turn out to be uh, the deciding factor, right, in the success of the uh, of the American Revolution, more so than any tactics or any strategy or any action of anybody, right? A, a conclusion is just they were lucky that it took 12 weeks to get across an ocean uh, and, uh, and it, very, it was very difficult and extremely, uh, extremely hard to, to send uh, men and material back and forth and to communicate. And because of that, you had this, uh, this kind of semi-closed system you know, uh, where you could run all these experiments without the interference uh, that, that took place so routinely uh, in Europe and in Asia. And, uh, and uh, that's the American exercise. The, um, the uh, I mean, the first thing you take away is, it, I mean, one insight is the triumph of technology. The triumph of, you know, the Europe, what did the Europeans have going for them? They showed up with guns, germs, and steel, and they just showed up. And from that point, it was a foregone conclusion that one of the European tribes was going to win because what they met when they showed up was uh, a, a set of Indians that weren't even Neolithic. You know, if you look at the, you know, European history, you've got Stone Age going to Neolithic where, where go to Malta in 2500 BC. They're pretty good at creating stone temples, just like the Egyptians erected a lot of stone tempos, temples. So the American Indians didn't even have that. They, I mean, they didn't even work well with large blocks of stone. They definitely didn't get to copper. They didn't get to, uh, to, to bronze. They didn't get to iron. They didn't get to steel. They didn't get to gunpowder. And, you know, the story of European history is 10,000 invasions and bloody wars uh, that resulted in the mixing of so many different peoples and so many plagues over and over again, such that you had a very um, biologically tough 
group of uh, of people that had guns and had steel, and they were going to win uh, regardless. And and so the smartest thing the Indians did, as far as I could see, is when the Europeans showed up, if they murdered every single European that stepped foot on the, on the shore, that was their best bet, their best idea. And they might actually get 100 years or 50 years of peace. As soon as the Europeans set up and they started to uh, to set up a village and colonize and got a beachhead, that was the end for the Indians. And what happened was just 300 years of brutal, you know, uh, and uh, deterministic genocide, right? And uh, they never had a chance. Now, I'm not really arguing uh, in favor of uh, the moral superiority of the Indians over the Europeans. I Right. The general the other theme you see, you know, is endless tribal wars. Right. The Euro, uh, the American Indians had endless tribal wars. And, and the story of history is 10,000 tribal wars. The only the only difference between the Europeans and Rothbard's history and the Indians history is since the Indians didn't have uh, a very advanced culture, no one wrote it down. And so the 15,000 years of endless tribal wars amongst thousands of Indian tribes just aren't recorded history, right? And, and every one of them, if they were recorded, they would have a story of rise through adversity, you know, leading to prosperity, leading to eventual moral decay, leading to corruption, leading to being crushed by another Indian tribe, right? So they weren't much better, but it was pretty clear that all the Indian tribes were getting displaced. You know, they, what's funny here is there are a lot of stories in the book about a, a governor, right? Uh, the governor of Virginia, uh, a governor of Maryland, uh, a governor of New York that abused the colonists. And then if they abused the colonists too much, like, for example, you know, in early Virginia, it's the death penalty to not go to church, it's the death penalty to try to go home. It's the death penalty to try to leave. It's the death penalty to, to, to break a rule. I mean, they pretty much kill you for anything you do. The, the, you know, criticizing the boss, you know, puts you in jail for a month and criticizing him three times. It's a death penalty. So you read that and you think, wow, that's the governor wasn't so nice, right? That's, it's pretty, pretty awful communist tyranny. And so for that reason, they rebelled against the governor. Uh, I get that. But then when they had a liberal governor that said, don't murder the Indians, they rebelled against them too. And there the infraction was the governor won't let us murder the Indians. And so it, it wasn't like the colonists were the good guys. It was, uh, it was a story of um, the British fighting with the Spaniards, fighting with the French. The Spaniards murdering all the Indians and enslaving them. The Indians enslaving each other all the time. The colonists wishing to murder all the Indians. And, and you know, when they did it the hard way, they used guns. But, uh, you know, lots of stories of the colonists would, uh, they would seize some, uh, some land from the Indians. The Indians would object they would fight over it. An Indian would kill a colonist. The colonists would murder 20 Indians, and then they would declare war. The colonists would, like, send the Indians a bunch of smallpox-infested blankets. A million Indians would, you know, or hundreds of thousands would die because of the smallpox. 
and germ warfare, which, I mean, you're kind of amazed at just how diabolically creative all of these people are. Like, it's, I didn't bother just to go murder all the women and children with guns. I actually infected them all with smallpox and just let the plague do the job for me. And, and they kind of knew that would work, which, uh, you know, leaves you shaking your head. But, but, uh, you know, that you can't make this stuff up. For example, the colonists get in a fight with the Indians. They want their land. The Indians don't want to give up the land. So the colonists raise an army uh, to defend themselves. And then they go march off to fight with the Indians that are murdering the colonists. But along the way, there's a peaceful Indian tribe that happens to be doing no harm to anybody. And they don't have any guns. So the colonists murder all of them because they've also got land. And somebody running, you know, running the militia thinks it's a lot easier to kill the friendly Indian tribe than it is to kill the hostile Indian tribe. And if you were to go back in time and someone said, give me some advice, you know, uh, about how I coexist. I mean, the answer is, you know, the weaker party doesn't coexist, right? You can, you know, you can run, but ultimately uh, it's going to be the triumph of power. And so, uh, you know, a steel age uh, set of colonists with gunpowder and and biological immunity and uh, steel, they were going to displace uh, the indigenous tribes. And it was just a question of how much violence was going to take place and how brutal it would be over time. And um, so my takeaway from that is you really want to be the technology leader. <laughs> Right. And uh, there, there is no future for your culture and, and no amount of appeasement and no amount of diplomacy and no amount of, yeah, no amount of, of reasonable uh, trade works. Ultimately, this was the story of um, the most powerful displacing the least powerful. I think I think all that's uh, very very insightful, Michael. And I just to sort of comment on some of the things that you were discussing. I, I agree that you know Rothbard's overall framework is the story of liberty versus power, right? He views history as the story of individuals in favor of voluntary cooperation and free markets, decentralization versus those in favor of greater government authority and uh, less individual freedom, and so on. And that. For most of history, uh, unfortunately, power triumphs. Uh, we can say liberty is responsible for the great flourishing, the massive, incredible living standards that we all have, the fact that we're all able to basically communicate virtually from different you know, parts of the world and all of that. And, and that's, that's ultimately due to capitalism and liberties, as, as Rothbard would say. But uh, you also have power, right? And uh, a big theme of Rothbard's book is that power corrupts. And he goes through this uh, is that whenever sort of the forces of liberty control a government or they finally oust the forces of power, they, they in a sense, to, to, to quote Lord Acton or to paraphrase Lord Acton, you know, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then they start to use the government for their own ends. They start to favor their own supporters. They start to restrict uh, you know, competition, whether in, in currency or religion or other sorts of, you know, business activities, et cetera. And uh, this is what you ultimately have. And this even happened after 
um, uh, the Revolutionary War for much of American history. And I, I know you commented on the uh, the importance of religion for basically spreading government propaganda, especially back in the day. And I think that's, I, I agree, because another big theme, a recurring part of, of Rothbard's history and conceiving liberty, as well as elsewhere, is what he called, or what has been called, the alliance of throne and altar, right? So it's this alliance between the government and between a established religion. And it's sort of a, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. The government builds a nice church, uh, or gives that church a monopoly or says, well, we'll give you some money or whatever. And then that church basically turns around and justifies the government. They say the king is divine. These acts come from God uh, or, you know, the royal governor. Uh, we have to listen to him or you have to go fight for him. You have to go die for him. You have to go uh, on his you know plantation or his feudal manor and repair his road or something. And in and, and this this is why the founding fathers ultimately tried to basically separate church and state. They didn't want an established religion. That would be a mouthpiece for the government uh, and all of its various interventions. And that in the modern form, we don't necessarily have religion doing that work, but we have intellectuals. It's like the secularized alliance of throne and altar. You get the government privileging various intellectuals, giving them a research grant, giving them some sort of university funding or work at a prominent think tank or government agency. And in return, those intellectuals turn around and they say, you have to support government interventions X, Y, and Z. Um, not necessarily because it's holy, so to speak, but it's because it will benefit the public welfare. And that's really the modern sense. And that's why it's so difficult to sort of break free, you could say, from power because they have the intellectual game. They have it, <laughs> they have it quite nicely. And they and, and, and they they they've they've they've, they've certainly um, uh, done their job in, in making sure that their viewpoint is the one that's well heard, and there is the viewpoint that looks prestigious and prominent, or as the other uh, viewpoints are sort of ostracized and left out. And then just to one uh, you know, final comment when you're talking about the Indians and land, et cetera, and a, another major kind of recurring aspect of Rothbard's book is is that to the extent that liberty was able to triumph in what became the United States, the colony, it was ultimately due to the abundance of land. Uh, the, 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 the British, really starting with the English, the French, um, really we could just concentrate on the English and then they became the British. They really tried to replicate feudalism in the colonies. Uh, they had first colonized Ireland through like a hundreds of years process of subjugation and they said, well, this is great. Why don't we do the same thing <laughs> uh, for, in North America? We've got the Virginia colony. We've got uh, Maryland. Uh, you know, there was a certain Lord Baltimore, Virginia, named after Virgin Queen Elizabeth, uh, and all of that stuff. They said, we're going to grant the land to a bunch of our favorite supporters, have a bunch of people work on that, work on that land. And the problem was there was just too much land. <laughs> the people could leave. Um, and also England was preoccupied with civil wars. And whenever England really tried to enforce anything, the, the, the colonists rose up. And there were, the, there were the Indians and there was a lot of conflict, unfortunately, between those groups. I mean, ultimately, the, the center of their difficulty was the question over land. It's that who owned all of this land? A lot of the colonists were sort of imbued with the Lockean well, in order to really own land, you have to do something to the land. You have to chop down the trees. You have to till, you have to you know, irrigate uh, some land. You have to grow crops. You have to uh, you know, do something to it. 
and a lot of the Indian tribes were, uh, you know, less settled hunter and gatherers. You know, could, one way of describing it could be too harsh, but of course, when they say, "Well, we own this whole forest," <laughs> and the colonists say, "Well, no, you don't. You didn't do anything to the forest." Uh, there's going to be conflict, unfortunately, and that's a an ugly side of Rothbard's book. It's that, as you mentioned, the, the quite honestly, sort of the genocidal um, uh, characteristics. And and this was, you know, this was this was life back then. It was it was kill or be killed, right? You're under this constant state of threat. Um, you could have your 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 head chopped off or blown up, or if you didn't obey someone, you get the death penalty. And then we decided on a more lenient form of punishment where if you steal someone's horse, they're going to cut your ear. They're going to clip it. So everyone will always see it. You'll be forever branded. That's your, goes on your permanent record, et cetera. And, and yeah, life was, life was rough back then. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's just incredible how people manage to deal with that. And in a sense, how a lot of the things, you know, Liberty versus power, Alliance with Throne and Altar, you know, they're still with us today. And uh, yeah, so I just, uh, I think that those are important takeaways from uh, from Rothbard's uh, 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 conceived in liberty. Yeah, to the extent that there's virtue that that pops out following the American Revolution, and of course there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of imperfections at that point too. But but the virtue from the American experiment is you know you could attribute to the fact that the Europeans showed up with superior technology and they found a, a, a set of extremely valuable property, highly desirable property that uh, they could take from a stone age people. Like they could simply seize it uh, because the indigenous people couldn't defend it. So that's, that was a benefit to them. And then they were so far away from Europe it was difficult for the rest of the Europeans to meddle with them and screw it up. So that was a benefit. And then the third benefit is they ran all these different experiments and there were so many bad ones where they had colonies destroyed by the intertwining of religion and government and they had corruption due to absolute power that by the time they got to the American Revolution, um, all of the learned uh, men that were involved would have been familiar with all of the awful results from the um, from the previous political experiments of the past two hundred years, and so that you know, separation of church and state was one of the rallying cries of the revolution, and you can see why because. Because as soon as the religion got entwined with absolute power, life became hell on earth for the people that live in the colony. But it's not that it's 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 not that um, absolute power combined with uh, religion is losing. In fact, oftentimes it's winning. But what what made the difference here was all these colonies were in competition with each other and there was extra space to go west to your point. So every single time an awful form of government aligned with an awful religious influence and, and some authoritarian or tyrant implemented a set of batshit, crazy, irrational rules, people fled, either fled west or they fled north or they fled south so that, um, 
the irrational authoritarians had their colony collapse. And, um, and so the rational political economic exercises were more successful in this market, right? The, the entire North American continent became a marketplace of political economic ideas. And, and uh, in other examples in human history, when the authoritarian got control of the country, they just simply murdered everybody. And, and so the best idea didn't always win because brute force uh, came into play. But, but here, like, for example, in New York, you had a feudal, uh, a feudal architecture where you had a few rich families that owned everything, owned all the land. And in Pennsylvania, you could actually come and get land. So with this flow of people from Europe to the New World, everybody would land in Philadelphia. They would go to Pennsylvania because they knew that if they landed in New York, they would be a serf. And if they went to Pennsylvania, they might have property rights. And so there was a triumph. The idea that individuals should be able to own property was competing with uh, a feudal colony. The idea that <clears throat> only 10 families owned all the property. And in that competition, uh, the more rational idea ended up getting all the immigrants and then they had more power and they were able to defend themselves against uh, the irrational idea. Peter Stuyvesant, you know, as Dutch governor of New York was a, you know, unmitigated tyrant, you know, crazy. And uh, so it turned out that when the, uh, you know, when the British sailed on New York, most of the people in New York didn't want to defend him. And so he didn't have an army because why would you want to fight for a, a, an irrational authoritarian tyrant when the people that are going to take over are actually going to treat you better? So what you found is that the Dutch got squeezed out of the New World because they were just awful. <laughs> like I have to tell this story; it's just so ridiculous. Like the Dutch show up in uh, in uh, Delaware and they start a colony, and um, they coexist peacefully with the Indians. And then one day the Dutch start throwing trash out the backside of their colony, and one of the things they throw out uh, is um, is a silver ashtray that has the stamp of the the king or the monarch of the Netherlands on it. And some Indians find the ashtray, the silver ashtray, and the, since they don't have silver, they think this is cool. So they melt it down and they make a pipe and they give it to the chief of the Indian tribe. So, you know, and, you know, I, again, I could never make this up. You would never believe it. So the chief of the Indian tribe, living in peace with the Dutch colonist, smokes the silver pipe pulled out of a trash heap. And some of the Dutch colonists see the Indian smoking the silver pipe. They take offense because they realize he's got silver. They don't want Indians to have silver. And he took the silver from the ashtray that had the stamp of the Dutch monarch on it. And that makes it treason. And so they murder him for committing treason against the monarch of the Netherlands. They kill... Uh, it's pretty evil to kill a random innocent person for smoking a pipe. Killing someone for picking your trash out is like stupid double evil. Killing the chief of the Indian tribe is just moronic. So, of course, the Indians then kill all the Dutch colonists. And so that's the end of that, right? And so yeah, people do such irrational stupid things, not, not just evil, it's evil to murder all your own people and keep the guns.
it's stupid to murder your enemy's chief while they can still fight back, you know, for no reason. But the Dutch got squeezed out because they were just irrational, right? And and then the British were the beneficiaries of the Dutch being stupid. The uh, the French kind of coexisted peacefully as best they could with the Indians by just trading. I mean, they they showed up and they traded with the Indians. But the problem with trading is, you know, trading is is not nearly as powerful a metaphor. The French didn't show up and kill all the Indians and settle and uh, and farm the land. They just traded with them. So that meant that the British had 20 times as many people in the British colonies as the French had. So when the battle came, uh, the British had soldiers and they could trample the French interests because the French didn't actually accumulate enough manpower to fight back. And so they were squeezed out of the continent. You know, again, it's, it's not like a victory of the of the kindest and the gentlest and the most rational. It's 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 the victory of the most powerful, and they happen to believe in some liberty, but it's a victory of the most powerful. So the Dutch get squeezed out because they're stupid. The French get squeezed out because they're not powerful enough and they're just traitors. And and uh, if you look at the history of warfare. I mean, you'll love this one. This is your favorite subject, Saifedean, diets, right? Right. If I want to actually feed an army, I feed them wheat and grain because I can grow a lot of corn and a lot of wheat on acreage. And the carrying capacity of agricultural land that spits out starches is 10x to 20x the carrying capacity of uh, you know, a hunter gatherer or a rancher. So I can't feed my soldiers meat. I have to feed them biscuit. And yeah, it's going to kill them at some point, but not before the age of 30. And so I just need the army to make it to 30. And then I've got 20 times as many soldiers and I can kill everybody. So, so the Roman army, the Egyptian army, all these agricultural armies are fed on, on, uh, low quality grain that isn't best long term, but it works fine in the short term. And the colonists, the British colonists in the, in, the U.S. benefited from the same thing. They they implemented agriculture, and because they implemented agriculture, they had more manpower to man the militia to push back the French and to, and to push back the Spaniards, right? And and uh, so it was their economy that was better. And um, we we just see we see uh, so many examples of this. Where by the time you'd lived in the U.S. for 200 years, or if you had any degree of history, right? Ma- Rothbard's history is uh, is novel to us, but it wasn't novel, you know, to Jefferson and Washington and and and, uh, and Adams and the other founding uh, figures in the American Revolution. What they would have seen uh, would have informed them, and so I I think uh, yeah, they try to keep religion out as best they can. Eventually, religion morphs into secular ideology, and secular ide- ideology becomes a political party. And when a political party gets control of the, the apparatus of government, they then can turn the state education and the, and the state taxation and the state regulatory authorities in favor of their political interests, and then you have another corruption uh, that, that happens. But... Um, 
for a while, right? They tried to hold back on that. Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 incredible when we're looking at the past how all of that plays uh, together. And I mean, going through well, one just how different the world was with the you know the people fighting each other and people killing each other. And in many ways, it comes down to superiority comes down to a, a function of population, right? How many people do you have? And of course, how big you know, your economy is. And that was really uh, Great Britain's strength is that they, they had a lot, they had their revolution in the 1600s. They got that over it. They had a civil war, then they had a glorious revolution. And that created basically a constitutional monarchy, which at the time, up to that point was what we might say is the best um, governance system. And as opposed to say like an absolutist monarchy where the king can basically do whatever they want, such as in France or in Spain or, or, you know, czarist Russia or, or, or whatever. Instead, the, the king of uh, Great Britain was uh, the, the king of uh, the king of England, king of Great Britain uh, was constrained. Parliament had some power and then that happened in the late 1600s, 1688. And then in, in the early uh, 1700s, um, you, you have this policy of, of salutary neglect, which is basically for a variety of reasons. The British government is not enforcing its navigation laws, which literally, in a sense, destroy the economy to benefit privileged interests in Great Britain. And this allows... Uh, the economies of the the new world, the British colonies to explode, their populations to explode. And it becomes an area where people want to go to. I mean, we forget Europe was just actually uh, so dense. You had paupers. There was an abundance of labor relative to land and you had people literally practically starving and they were begging to go to the new world. And now you have this area where everyone has so much farmland, you can grow the crops that you want to grow. And this is, this really powers the, 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 the colony, the, the, the colonies the, in, 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 in their various economies. And that is really what is the decisive edge, say, compared to France, right? When you get to the French and Indian war or even, you know, Spain and, 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 and you know, really, really the French were you had British basically had a better system of governance and for all of the faults, of all of its faults, that's translated to the colonies. And they actually wanted to have their colonies thrive and grow. And that was just a simple um, you know, manpower advantage. And then, of course, after this, I mean, it wasn't entirely just that. But, of course, after this, then you get into various problems when Great Britain tries to then impose its, 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 its laws um, and its regulations. But, you know, what, the reason why Britain won is is, is their economy was better, their system of governance was better. Well, the reason why the, the British or the colonies won, say, over the Indian tribes is, well, their economy was better, their system of governance was better. Uh, they could benefit from an enormous amount of technology and thriving market economies that led to more sophisticated uh, technologies, including uh, defense, you know, firearms and, 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 and all of that stuff. And and, and uh, being able to grow food literally on farms and instead of hunting for it or having much more limited, uh, limited agricultural production. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just always, it's just interesting because a lot of the stuff we don't really think about, no one's really settling new land or, 
um, or, you know, or, 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 or no one really owns their own farm or something like that, or much less owns like a musket. Um, but <laughs> that, 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 that was very important. And uh, I think those are, you know, some major reasons why, of course, the, what became the United States was, of course, an English-speaking uh, nation. Yeah, you can see the, the merits of uh, political dysfunction, right? I mean, I, I, I mean there, there are lots of examples where parliament was in conflict with the monarchy and, uh, <clears throat> and the business interests were struggling with each other. And that, um, and that, that kind of emasculated uh, the British from being able to control the colonies that plus, I, I really think the distance made, a, you know, was significant. If you look at the breakup of the Roman Empire, right? I mean, you, you couldn't rule the East from Rome. And so they eventually moved to Byzantium or Constantinople because it just takes too long for a message to, to go. So you couldn't reasonably micromanage the colonies from London. And there are a lot of examples where, where there was a lot more tyranny and authoritarian conduct of the of the government in Britain over the British than there was over the colonists. The co you know there are a lot of laws and a lot of them were just ignored. Right? I mean they passed all sorts of batshit crazy rules. I mean so many. I mean uh, sometimes the crazy rules came out of London. Sometimes the crazy rules came from the governor. Uh, you know, it could be something as simple as you're not allowed to make hats. You're not allowed to bake bread. You're not allowed to, you know, you, you can't cross the, this side of the river to the other side of the river. You're, you know, you know, uh, you can never underestimate the number of just batshit crazy rules human beings come up with. You can't hold your wife's hand. You know, you, you can't uh, be out in public without a hat. You know, you can't mention these words. Etc. It went on and on and on, but many of them were ignored, and it was a lot easier to ignore them when it was difficult to project power. And so we think about how you actually uh, project power or impose your power on someone else. Ultimately, the British, uh, they had to impose their authority on the colonists using local labor, the colonists, and so ultimately, anyone that traveled that far across the ocean would eventually go native and start to associate and start, start to identify more with their fellow colonists than they identified with the British. You know, uh, they put down roots, they raised a family, they identified. And so now you're, you're ordering someone in Boston to abuse other people in Boston and it's not so easy to tell someone to murder themselves. Whereas, you know, it's, it's particularly telling, by the way, ironic that, you know, in the Revolutionary War, the British didn't want to fight the Americans and they end up hiring a bunch of German mercenaries and they, they had to send a bunch of Germans over to fight the Americans because the British didn't want to fight. And um, when the Germans got to the New World, right, and this is, this is, of course, the triumph of the least worst. Life is so awful in Germany that they simply wanted to uh, defect, you know, or, or jump ship and go and start their own life in, in the new world. So, so you know, 25% would desert, 25% would die, you know, in the struggle. 
the last half would, you know, would over time decide I'm, I'm in this for 12 or 24 months and I'm gone. And, uh, and from the point that you actually sent the army, you're bleeding out two or 3% of your manpower a month. Right. And so if you, if you don't win a quick victory, you're not winning at all. And, uh, and the, if you can't get the people to want to comply from a distance, then you're going to lose control of them. And this is what takes you back to the power of religion again. Ultimately, uh, you need the people to all agree to comply. And the most effective way to get people to agree to comply is, is, is to promise them, you know, paradise in the afterlife and to get them to agree that this is more important than anything on earth. And the only way to get them to agree on that is, is to, you know, indoctrinate them, if not every day, like every week of their life from an early age. And this is why religion just keeps popping up over and over again. You know, I, we talk about Bitcoin forks, right? And digital currency forks. Well, I mean, a cryptocurrency is an ideology and a fork is like a religious schism. And you can learn a lot by looking at the old religious schisms, right? I mean, this, this entire story is dominated by forks of ambition and aspiration. And if, you know, if I'm being charitable, I'll say there was a group of people, you know, in Europe that were abused and disenfranchised and they somehow wanted to rise above their station. And so they formed a group. The group eventually became a religious movement, whether it's the Puritans or the Quakers or the something, right? Uh, and uh, and by forming that religious affiliation, they were able to channel all of their cultural energy and their political energy in pursuit of their goals. And that I mean, that's the story for 10,000 years that we've been recording history. That's the charitable way to describe it. The, the more cynical way to describe it is a bunch of nobles in northern Germany wanted to cut off, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. And so they found Martin Luther and they began to support him because he his narrative fit their ambition. And, uh, you know, Henry VIII decided that uh, he wanted to support the Anglican Church because that idea fit his ambition. And so all of these forks in religion are really political ambitions and oftentimes there's a very powerful actor behind them or a set of actors a, a set of merchants that want to push back against a set of aristocrats or one nation or one prince that wants to push back against some other prince and the result is you just have a never-ending set of different protestant sects uh you know pretty soon the you know the uh the British have, have flipped to Protestantism and then you're Catholic and you're stuck in, in the UK. And so you're getting drawn and quartered. And, you know, I, I mean, what they do to each other is just so horrific as you can't even say it on a podcast. Right. But if you're Catholic in, in Britain, you've got to flee for your life. And that explains Maryland. And if you're a Protestant in France, you're a Huguenot, you have to flee for your life. And that explains, you know, another colony and, and uh, the one thing that just tends to be a commonality is just about every religion, as soon as they get, as soon as they get control of a government, whether it's a small colony or it's a small unit, 
they get more and more powerful and then they begin to abuse their power and pretty soon they're abusing other religious sects just as badly as they were abused at the start of of their ideological life and then even when you have um even when you have examples of pacifist religious sects like the quakers they start out pacifist and they're the model of pacifism until they actually have a modicum of success in pennsylvania and then all of a sudden they become the party supporting the war <laughs> the war against the indians or the war against something so so eventually uh the you know the ideological uh, the the ideologies which are virtuous over the course of two or three or four generations eventually are corrupted and um and this story of of the human condition in the united states or or the the pre united states americas it's just it's just uh one of these life cycles after the other after the other it, it's not clear that any one of them was any better than any other but if you had to say why did we get america you would say well every, everybody had some isolation from the massive empires of germany and france and the netherlands and and britain and uh and maybe the least dysfunctional one the british which you know their virtue was their dysfunction right the parliament fighting with the monarch all the time and that was you know and the fact that they were busy and distracted it's not like they were virtuous they were just less dis you know less worse right the least worse so they have the best combination of ideas and then they plant so many colonies and you've got the ones that are feudal like Maryland and New York, and those ones uh, are weakened by the ones that are more open, uh, the Rhode Islands or the Pennsylvanias. And then you have the communist police colonies that pop up like Georgia and the like. And, and then you have people fleeing, right? And, and, and you, have, you have natural forces, right? I mean, isn't America like the greatest triumph of natural law, right? We talk about the virtues of Bitcoin is, is it's natural. The virtues of, of, um, of Locke, right? And the virtues of liberty are, are natural rights. And so you had this triumph of natural law. And why? Because you got, a, you got as far away as you could from the artificial impact of massive European armies. At the end of the day, it wasn't easy to put, you couldn't put a 100,000 soldier army into the field in the colonies at any point in time, right? It, the logistics were just impossible to do it. So you had isolation from that. Then you had uh, a decentralization in the form of natural competition, not just the colonies as we know it, right? But like Plymouth was at, at war politically with Boston for a lot of this time period, right? The, the various cities were, were struggling with each other. On the eve of the American Revolution, Vermont was at war with New York, right? I, you know, and part of New Hampshire. So you had all the colonies struggling with each other. You had, uh, you had the checks and balances of the French checking the Brits. And oftentimes the Americans played the French off against the British and vice versa. You had the Spanish, you know, that were a check and balance on the British. Then you had the Indian tribes that were a check and balance so that if one colony, 
was too irrational, right? The Indians would ally with another colony. So you had a lot of checks and balances due to lots of natural constituencies. And then you had this, um, you had this option. If, if you're a colonist in the New World and you were abused by the New Yorkers, you could get across the river to Pennsylvania or, or to New Jersey. And maybe you lived a better life. And so you always had that as a pressure valve. And, and the option, the option to go and or acquire property somewhere else, uh, created, uh, natural feedback and natural virtue that they didn't have in other parts of the world. And there was always the possibility to go west and, and keep going west, right? And this, this wasn't, you know, if you're looking for who's the winner, well, clearly the indigenous Americans aren't the winners, right? They're pretty much the losers continually for 400 years. But if your goal was to germinate the idea of property rights and sovereignty and freedom, right, in, uh, in a European culture, then, uh, then North America uh, with all of these various colonies vying for power with each other was your best bet. And what you got was this, this, uh, Darwinian crucible of, uh, of competition, uh, competing force against another competing organization over and over again. And, uh, and, and I guess, you know, the, the really awful ones died, right? I mean, when the Spanish showed up and treated every single, you know, indigenous person like a slave, right? That, that, that didn't help them much. But of course, you know, the, the interesting part of the story uh, with regard to Spain is the Spanish show up and they see gold and their view is we're just going to murder everybody and slave everybody to take the gold and we're here for the gold. Okay, and so they they did that. They achieved it. They used guns and germs and steel uh, to take the gold. They shipped the gold back to Spain. They inflated the gold supply by a factor of three, and you had the Cantillion effect. The people that that originally grabbed the gold got rich. The the traders in the port that it landed in got rich, and then over a hundred years, the price of everything in Spain tripled. And they had hyperinflation in their own country and they collapsed their own economy because, as you know, you can't eat gold and gold doesn't cure disease and you can't, you know, you can't ship food with gold, right? Gold is not a factory. It's not a flour mill. It doesn't generate energy. It doesn't give you horses, right? It doesn't give you any of the things in life. So, so if your idea was, let's just go grab the precious metal. The metal's not precious. And they discovered that gold isn't money, right? It's, it's a defective money. And, uh, and, and they ended up corrupting and collapsing their own economy in that pursuit. On the other hand, the, the French took, took this other low impact approach, which is we'll trade for furs and, and we'll colonize a bit, but, but lukewarm and that didn't work so well either. And the, and the British came in this middle territory. We're going to colonize and we're going to, we're going to create manufacturing and agriculture. And, and that turned out to be the most rational of the three approaches. And then the next 200 years, 
are are this maneuvering and the question is what religion is uh, the best one and the answer is none no state religion is the best one that was that answer and then what's the best form of government and the answer is one with checks and balances with a lower assembly or a higher assembly and a separate executive branch and a and, and a settled body of law that that gives rights to the individual and it wasn't always clear that was going to happen. That, that wasn't every colony. That just, that's just the amalgam of what came out after all of the back and forth. The authoritarians, they got pushed out of the, you know, out of the continent, right? The, if, you know, if, if you want to read a blood curdling story of just about the worst executive imaginable, you know, read the story of Peter Stuyvesant. And uh, the irony is, you know, we name high schools after this guy in New York. It's 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 just flabbergasting to me that Stuyvesant actually manages to have any kind of positive name recognition when the guy was the most horrific actor, you know, that you know you can identify in the history of the country. And on one hand, I guess you can rehabilitate a name. But he was the death of Dutch uh, of the Dutch Empire in the New World because of the irrational behavior and, and the way that he just so brutally disrespected every human being that uh, was under his charge. And so I guess, I guess there's a certain degree of justice, natural justice, that came about because uh, this. Uh, this experiment was allowed to continue in isolation from more powerful political, economic, and military forces for uh, a long enough period of time to settle into uh, call it a call it a rational or local minimum or a, a, a rational outcome. Right a after. There's that joke, you know, they say like this is the Americans will do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> right? Like uh whatever we had after the uh, after the revolution, it was the best thing after everything else had been tried and the horrific stupid ideas had failed, right? And the uh, suboptimal ideas had been displaced with more optimal ideas. Right. And uh, and and this book kind of gives you the hundreds and hundreds of stories as um, as a set of humanity, a set of human beings that are self-interested careen toward a stable political economic system, which creates uh, the most prosperity for the greatest number. Yeah, I mean that that's uh, it's it's definitely uh, you almost wouldn't expect the outcome from reading the beginning or the first volume on all the terrible colonial governors and, and all of that and in uh, yeah I, I just to sort of go through uh, some of what you were you had been discussing I I agree the the gridlock was a huge component of why uh, the American colonies succeeded particularly the gridlock in in, in Britain and it was their constitutional government in a sense that almost allowed for that gridlock, at least initially gridlock in the form of, well, it's, it's going to be hard for the, for the English king to subjugate the colonists when the English king is dealing with a revolt. 
right? Which he, you know, he was dealing with in the, you know, in, in like the mid 1600s. And then uh, he got his head chopped off. Uh, and, and then there's going to be gridlock when you have basically the um, William Waypole, uh, more or less uh, Britain's first prime minister, basically trying to prevent Britain from imposing or enforcing various rules on, on the American people. And, and as you mentioned, the, the abundance of land is, is a huge thing. And also the abundance uh, of, of simply the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean might be one of the most important uh, components of this because uh, great, uh, you know, England had, had subjugated Ireland. Ireland was turned into their colony and, and, and the island's not that far away from uh, England. But of course, you have to go across the Atlantic. And uh, once you're there, uh, once you're in the new world, you have a tendency to associate more with the new world. And that was Great Britain's problem. It's that a lot of people consider them British, but uh, Great Britain didn't want to give them any say in their government. And that alienated a, 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 a lot of people. And then, of course, when you're trying to impose feudalism, there's just simply so much land. You can go north. You can go south. You can go west. Uh, there, there's just so much land. And everybody can have their peace. And everybody can homestead. And it was that land that really kind of imbibed them with the, the, the you know, it really taught them the importance of private property. Hey, this is mine. Um, I, this is my land. I built that log cabin. I built this farm. I chopped down these trees. It's mine. It's not yours, as opposed to Europe, where they're on some feudal manor that's been there for hundreds of years, etc. And another sort of unsung hero, uh, you know, we, we, we've mentioned it, is, is this concept of, of the Enlightenment, right? This, this Enlightenment in the late 1600s, early 1700s, incredibly important because basically teaching people to use reason and to think that how the world has existed before is not necessarily how the world has to exist now. Life was nasty, brutish, and short. People were killing people. Uh, you did what you were told to do. Uh, you didn't, re- you know, you, 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 you burned buildings down. You slaughtered people. You enslaved people. You fought for a king. You would sacrifice your children, basically, getting them drafted. And they could get their arm chopped off or something like that. And the world worked according to how whatever relevant religion you were worshiping. And then along comes basically the, 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 the Enlightenment in England and the Scottish Enlightenment to teach people the importance of discovering natural law, of how the world works. We can use reason to figure out basic science. And then we can use reason to figure out the social sciences, natural rights, someone saying, I have ownership over my body, you have self-ownership, that was incredibly controversial at the time because you're basically saying, I have certain rights, the king's rights can only go so far or the government's rights can only go so far over my my person and, 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 and as they soon realized, my property. And having that and, and, and John Locke was a, was a very big part of this and, and one of my favorite sort of stories in, 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 in Rothbard's book is, so you've got John Locke's two treatises of government. It's this huge, complicated work. Uh, it's, it, it's still read today. It's this towering work in political philosophy and, and all of that. And your average people, your average colonists, they were Lockeans, but they didn't read John Locke. And they didn't have time to read John Locke. They got to work on their farm. They got to, they got to hunt something. They got to fight against invaders or, the, or they didn't even know how to read or at that level of, of, of reading in depth. But instead you have Cato's letters 
uh, by John uh, Trenchard and, and, and Thomas Gordon, and and they're the ones really sort of distilling the the Lockean creed of you know liberty, property, and so on. And it's basically in a pamphlet format, almost the Sparknotes version. And that's how people are actually going to to really recognize the the importance of the Enlightenment and to realize that, hey, wait a second, the government maybe isn't protecting me. The government's an aggressor. The king's an aggressor. And that led to sort of further uh, um, consequences such as the revolution and, and, and et cetera. And I view the Enlightenment as one of the most significant achievements in human history just because this is now we realize that what was the past doesn't always have to be the past and we can try to create a better world. And of course we've had various degrees of success and, and failure, but just the ability to say, all right, we can now devise uh, institutions, rules over the marketplace and government that can hopefully lead to a more prosperous society. And just even that fact of even having technological progress, even having uh, advancements is, is, was, was extremely radical. And, and, and there was a, a whole confluence of events in, 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 in the colonies. And part of that was just Britain was too preoccupied. There was part of it was there's so much land. Part of it is that the, the colonists revolted whenever the British or the English and then the British tried to impose their rule. And that led to, quote unquote, I have a lot of problems with the Constitution, as Rothbard sort of goes into the later volume. But the Constitution, really, the United States is kind of like the best form of, 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 of government in many ways that we've been able to devise. And it came out of this, basically, you could say this weird sort of cauldron of, 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 of literally this, this, this um, uh, coliseum, you will, of people killing other people and fighting and bloodshed and, and, and uh, governments are toppled and then a governor's in charge and he gets the boot and then they bring someone else and then he gets the boot and all of that. And it, it's just a, and, and then the end result is you have this, you have this big revolution that in many ways, like so many other revolutions could have turned out terribly. You could have had some dictator. You could have had George Washington. A lot of credit uh, has to be gone to George Washington. He basically resisted a dictatorship multiple times. Man was not perfect. Uh, I think there were flaws in some of the policies he pursued as president, et cetera, but <laughs> he didn't become a dictator. And that's, that's a, t- you know, that, that's, it's an important precedent. Um, and, and it, it, it's, it's, it's just a, uh, it's, it's almost a marvel. You're kind of going like, oh yeah, th- this all happened. This is, this is how it all, uh, how it all worked out because it, it could have turned out so differently. And it was uh, definitely part reason and it was definitely part accident. And those two were definitely uh, intermingled and, and, and we're here with the results. You know, you know, safe. I, if you, if you were to ask like, so what's something that you took away from the book that, <clears throat> that was new or novel? I think um, the impression of a, of a typical American educated um, student is the colonists showed up, struggled to create a new world. There was a disagreement and, and there was a single revolution and we founded a country. And after I read the book, what I was struck by was there was one long, never ending revolution going on from the very beginning here. Like, like there was a fight between the people and authority 
everywhere all the time, every day. They were, they were disobeying laws. They were disobeying, um, uh, or fighting against taxes. They were attempting, uh, to rebel, they were they were fomenting re- rebellion after rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, and it was a never-ending cycle of political violence, real violence, and non non-conformity and non-compliance. And I think that gets whitewashed out of the history books. Nobody wants to tell you that that every colony was in conflict with. Uh, with the British or with whoever was running the colony from the very beginning, and they all had good reason. And so I'm struck by how ironic it is, for example, all all the laws that were passed almost always were ignored, uh, routinely, all the time. Uh, All the quick rents that were allowed, all all the rents, the the proprietors had had the right to property tax or or to levy property taxes, and half the time they were never paid and there was struggle after struggle after struggle where people just wouldn't pay their taxes, you know, ever. And they would, you know, they would tar and feather the tax collector or just send him back, you know, at the point of a gun. And a lot of times people, you know, just gave up on trying to collect the taxes. And in the only way you collect the taxes is with a military. Uh, and even then half the time it didn't work. So, there was extraordinary amount of of noncompliance and uh, and struggle from the beginning, and the American Revolution was just the culmination of what had been going on uh, continually. And so, I I think that's important, and I think I think that's the human condition. And you're kind of led to then ask the question, well. If that's basically the human condition, how come they succeeded in America, but they didn't succeed as effectively in most of the countries in Europe? And um, you kind of conclude it's it's not – I don't know that it's, it's a difference in human nature. Human nature is – seems to be the same everywhere. But what you had was a difference in geography – you know, you had you had that isolation from uh, the massive armies of the authoritarians, and the and the fact that you couldn't, it, it was much more difficult to to administer authority because if you sent people to the new world, immediately what they would do was go off and and find their own farm and create their own life. They didn't want to fight; they wanted to actually live happily ever after. So you lost control of them continually. And that's that's one of the takeaways. The other is, I um, you know, I think this is a story of energy. Like, uh, you know, we talked about channeling energy, but really, what what America represents was the largest pool of natural energy or natural property available to the European culture. The Euro- the Northern Europeans were going to spread everywhere in the world and dominate, right? You know, and they, they dominated Africa. They dominated South America. They dominated China. I mean, they, I mean, they dominated Asia, right? This is just one of the parts of the world they were dominating and they were doing, they were dominating with gunpowder, gunships and, and steel and superior technology just because, uh, they could. So the story of America is that very advanced culture. They get to America and, 
and they just ran into this massive pool of energy more than anywhere else in the world. For, for example, I, I just flew from Malta to Baltimore. Okay, Malta has no water. Okay, so when you're flying over the Mediterranean, you look down, you look at, you look at what can you achieve with no water, right? The Mediterranean is good for some things, but the carrying capacity of the island is, is only in the thousands unless you can actually create water. Very difficult. So there are a lot of parts of the world, North Africa, you know, uh, Greece, they were denurtured. Their, their forests were stripped. Their land was uh, over-farmed. If they had fertile, um, fertile land that was good for agriculture, it was destroyed by endless wars, right? And that's the story of Roman history and Greek history, endless wars, destroying fertile land. And then in other cases, they just didn't have the water. But when you land in Baltimore, you fly over the Chesapeake Bay. And if you look down at the Chesapeake Bay, you see endless water. You have fresh water flowing into an inland sea, which is protected uh, from uh, the hostile weather and from hostile waveforms. And it's the perfect place for you to farm, uh, for you to, uh, to implement agriculture. And even today, 400 years after they showed up, it's all farms and fresh water. And the entire east coast of the United States is incredibly fertile. So, you know, what is energy? Water, fresh water is energy. If, if you have elevation that drives fresh water that creates fertile farmland and you can grow corn and food and soybeans and the like, you can implement agriculture. It will lead to industry, you know, and, and uh, in this period in time, it's just incredibly high energy laid in land. Not all land is created equal. If I give you a hundred square miles of rock with no natural water, you can't grow anything there. And your, your population is limited to the water you can capture in a cistern in the, in the rainy season. So, so if you don't have the people, you're not going to have the army. If you don't have the army, you're not going to have the military power. You're not going to have the economic power. And so what the Europeans found was they found a very, a very good temperate climate especially from, you know, Virginia, you know, Northern Carolina to Virginia through Massachusetts and the like. It was a very favorable climate. It was very favorable land. They had a very simple set of uh, indigenous uh, dwellers to displace. And, you know, look, I mean, Whenever you study the history of Greece, uh, you know, the Greeks displaced everyone in, you know, 500 BC, and then the Romans displaced everybody, and before them, the Phoenicians, and before them, somebody else. So the, the story of civilization is the Neolithic culture displacing the Stone Age culture and the, you know, the, the bronze and copper age displacing the stone and then brass, you know, bronze displacing them and iron displacing them and steel displacing them and Greek fire displacing somebody else and gunpowder displacing somebody else. And so it's a never ending displacement of the previous people by the more powerful culture. And um, America was, was naturally going, it was going to happen just because of geography and, uh, and the rest is the political history is the story of this person did this and that person did that. But, 
you know, by the time you get to the end of this book and you're reading about the American Revolution, the conclusion is, you know, all of the American generals were goofballs. The good ones were undermined politically by the bad ones, right? I mean, the politicians undermined the tacticians. George Washington wasn't the best general, but it didn't matter. They made a, a host of awful military decisions. But at the end of the day, the winner is geography because the people that got sent to fight them didn't want to fight and they were going to desert as soon as they could desert. And so when you tell the story from a patriotic point of view, you want to talk about the great leader that heroically defeated the, you know, the evil enemy. But this is really a story of, of um, an incredibly fertile land that was colonized by an advanced culture with superior technology that kind of stumbled into stewardship and supremacy despite their best efforts, <laughs> you know, meandering, careening toward the future and, uh, and, and, uh, and winning because they were just the least worst managed uh, group of people. And they were driven by underlying human motives, which are everybody wants sovereignty, everybody wants freedom. And if they can get it by by realigning with uh, a better organization or a better government, they will. And if they can't, they'll run. And if they can't run anymore, they'll fight. And if, uh, if it turns out that, uh, that the enemy is too far away and too dysfunctional to fight back, then they will emerge to become the government. And then at the point they become the government, they will win. And then immediately upon winning, they will start to become corrupted by their own power <laughs> and recreate the same, uh, the same dysfunction, dysfunctional tyranny that they were fleeing from until they collapse under their own weight and something else takes their place. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I'd, I'd say, uh, if I would interject here, I'd say the, the, um, the, the details of the specific conflicts, obviously uh, many, but the overall theme, as you mentioned very astutely at the beginning, Michael, is that technology wins. And I think another way of putting this is that capitalism effectively wins. So uh, one major disadvantage that the uh, Native Americans did not have that had was the fact that they did not have property rights. So this just, uh, you know, on top of the fact that they didn't have all the um, modern technologies that Europeans had, Native Americans also did not have property rights in that they were not able to protect and enforce um, their sovereignty over plots of land because they did not have the concept of individual property rights. And so this, uh, as you were saying earlier, Patrick, you know, they say this entire plot of land was ours, but then, you know, nobody, nobody had put a fence around it. Nobody had um, made a settled farm in it. Nobody had built a house in it. And that makes property rights difficult to enforce because these people are particular, uh, usually also nomadic and traveling around. And so they, um, they did not have land that could have been easily marked off as this is ours. And in fact, this, um, you know, Rothbard, I think, makes the point that it, it, um, it might have made for easier um, coexistence between Europeans and the Native Americans if property rights of Native Americans were 
clearer because the continent was enormous and there was a lot of room for Europeans to come and settle and trade. And in many cases, of course, they did trade. Obviously, the history books, um, you know, the, the news, like the history, has, an, uh, has a vested interest in uh, uh, if it bleeds, it leads. And so we miss all the hundreds of years of peaceful interaction that took place between um, uh, Europeans and Native Americans because it's just not as newsworthy. But in reality, of course, they benefited enormously from trade. And if there were property rights, and if they developed this institution of capitalism and uh, more advanced methods of economic organization, they would have arguably fared better, even with all of the technological disadvantages. But yeah, ultimately, and this is a theme that I discuss in the Principles of Economics textbook that I just uh, published, you know, there's a lot to be depressed about in the world. A lot of bad things happen and a lot of bad people win, as you said. But ultimately, um, their technology and capitalism are like a superpower in the hand of whoever is able to wield it. As you were saying, you know, in the U.S., the reason that amongst, the, you know, from this crucible of horrible horrors, uh, something better kept on emerging is that people could escape and the people who offered property rights and more freedom would attract more manpower and more soldiers and effectively overrun the ones that offered less freedom and less property rights. And so it, this, I think, is the, um, if we wanted to take an optimistic um, tone, an optimistic conclusion from the book, it would be this, that uh, no matter how tyrannical, as you were saying, you know, those governments, those rebels then take over and then they become the tyrants and they become the oppressors. This cycle continues and, you know, we move from one tribe being the oppressor to another, but all along what is constantly winning is technology in that the technologies of these tribes are developed. They, because they have property rights and uh, capitalism, they're able to develop new and advanced ways of organizing economic production. And then when they become stagnant, those ideas are copied and then people who are able to supplement them with more uh, free market capitalism and more property rights and better uh, economic organization end up um, supplanting the people who had um, calcified and became sclerotic and became tyrants and didn't allow economic freedom. So in a sense, we do see the positive story of uh, where, um, you know, where the title conceived in liberty might be coming from and where it leads to some hope. But I think um, you know, Rothbard himself, he's also quite critical of the American Revolution in many ways. And he's, uh, you know, he separates the uh, revolutionaries into two general camps, the more libertarian, liberty-minded uh, camps of people like Jefferson, and then the more corporatist and uh, government control camp, which essentially, he argues, thought that uh, the the way of the, the you know the outcome of the revolution should be that they should take over the state apparatus of the uh, British Crown, so that what the U.S. really needed was just uh, local tyranny rather than foreign tyranny. Whereas the uh, Jeffersonians were more into the idea of we don't want tyranny at all. So, uh, I, you know, and we're going to have another session uh, to discuss all of this um, in two days. So we're going to get into this into more detail. But I'm curious about your thoughts on, uh, on this aspect and this split. You know, 
they have those movies, you know, where sometimes the twist at the end is you find out that the hero was the villain, you know, and the person you've been rooting rooting for the entire movie turns out to be uh, to be the villain. You know, when you do uh, read this book, all you know, two hundred and sixty plus chapters, you get to the point in the Revolutionary War where where the Americans have won, thrown off the yoke of imperialism, but they haven't yet established the nation. And every school kid is taught, well, then we had the Federalist Papers and, you know, and we weren't quite done and we had to create the, the federal government and then it was all good. And I'm left with the thought that maybe they just should have stopped at the end of the Revolutionary War and left the colonies independent without actually establishing the federal government. And, and uh, you know, and maybe all of our heroes – that that we see as founding fathers that established the national government, maybe they're the ones that just imposed an even greater authoritarianism on America than the British had imposed, and and we would have been better off if we hadn't completed that, right? And and he he kind of leaves you thinking that 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 uh, be careful what you wish for because. When the British were running the U.S., they had a hard time imposing their will on Americans. But as soon as Americans were running the U.S., they found it to be much easier to impose their will on Americans. And uh, you're better off to have a very distant, ineffective authoritarian than to have a local, very effective, efficient authoritarian. And so, uh, yeah, I, I do think that. I do, you know, I think that uh, your point on the Indians is a good one, which is there's two stories here. There's the story of the Europeans struggling with each other and the colonists struggling with each other against the Europeans. And that's a very interesting story. And the other story is just the European colonists struggling with all of the Native American tribes. That's a second, uh, a second story and maybe even the more powerful one in a way. And I, you know, as I started, I said, look, this is really just, the, it's the story of the most powerful, the most powerful, uh, overcoming the less powerful. So, uh, the most powerful ideology, capitalism is a more powerful ideology than communism, right? And, um, uh, you know, certain currency, gold is a more powerful currency than seashells and Bitcoin is a more powerful currency than gold and, and, and the British culture, was a more powerful culture. The European culture was more powerful than the Native American culture. And the government, uh, you know, the Republic government was more powerful than the tribal cultures that they displaced. But you can, you can see clearly the, I mean, the, the American Indians, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's popular to talk about, you know, to, to act like they're like Adam and Eve in the garden and they're the innocents. But the truth is they were awful in every regard to each other and, and in some ways more humane than, than the thing that replaced them. And the culture definitely wasn't best for humanity. It wasn't, it wasn't the most powerful. It wasn't the most humane in any way. You could point out they didn't have property rights, right? And if, since they didn't have property rights, any random Indian could sell away everybody's land, right? To anybody else. And so it's pretty dysfunctional, if you don't have property rights, because you will tend to be the loser in that struggle. But they didn't have a common language. They didn't have a written language. They didn't have a history. 
they they didn't have you know a shared law they didn't have any other shared mores and what what can you say about a society that never invented the wheel like like i i mean the real indictment of the american indians is they used a wheel for pottery but they didn't actually use a wheel for locomotion they never figured out how to turn it on its side and so no wheels, no, you know, no effective domestication of animals, no mills, no machinery, you know, all of the things that, that were part of European civilization in 2500 BC, they still had not made. They're literally stuck around 25,000 BC and they were not moving forward. And the result was a whole lot of human misery. So I, I suppose at the end of the day, it's hard to lament displacing that culture with a European culture. Certainly the life expectancy and the prosperity that followed from the European culture would be, would be greater for the common person. And it was, uh, it was kind of inevitable. Uh, and we don't write much about it because, you know, because it's just, uh, I guess they didn't record the history and, it's almost like a footnote in a way, but all, all of this is there was an energy source and there was an organization that showed up that was, that was more powerful and they found a way to harness the energy in order to create human prosperity. And certainly today you have 300 plus million people in the U.S., you know, with an average life expectancy of, you know, 80 and, uh, if you compare that to some few million people with an average life expectancy of 30 or 35 that, um, you know, are carrying water 10 miles a day, it's kind of hard to want to go back to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that's, those, those are great points. I mean, certainly, especially with safety Dean brought up about the, the private ownership and even just, yeah, it comes down to, to the, the culture and something else that's also interesting sort of adding on to that. There's a, a great book called the, the Myth of the Ecological Indian. I think it's by Stephen Kresh. I think that's how you pronounce the last name. And going through it's how sometimes we have this myth that it was also environmentalists. And that was not true. Uh, many tribes believed in reincarnation and the fact that you could just kill as many deer as you needed and more would sprout up. And that was obviously not conducive to growth or conservation of, of, of natural resources and in, 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 in human prosperity, ultimately. And, and that, you know, opened the door. I mean, and especially the difficulties over land ownership or what con, you know, counted as ownership basically allowed the, or enabled the, the English colonists to really sort of capitalize in, in, in homestead, uh, the incredible amount of land, the forest, the, 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 the turning into the farmland and, and so on. And yeah, and, and the ultimate sort of, you could say, driver of a lot of this is geography, geography, even when you're Europe, the only reason Britain was able to basically do its own thing is because of the English Channel, right? And then geography with the American colonies because of the Atlantic Ocean and then just so much land. And even in a sense, as, as mentioned, geography with the American Revolution, because as, as Michael pointed out, the uh, we never won any of our battles with the way the generals wanted them to win, the pitched battles. Uh, your army versus my army at four o'clock today, you know, show up. We won with guerrilla warfare, ambushing supply lines. We knew the terrain. We knew the geography more. 
and the the the, the British soldiers didn't want to have to uh, deal with that, and 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 that that was a huge component. And and yeah, I think describing it as sort of energy is is a is a very succinct way of putting it because this new world literally just had so much stuff for the taking, and that led to one of the most powerful. Uh, countries in in world in in world history and in many ways it's you know it, it's it's energy the the, the the land was very fertile there was a lot of the land and all it took was just some people with understanding private property and then reading some pamphlets about it uh, or the, the the Twitter of the past so to speak and 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 then they're off to the races yeah what well, you see is it's a triumph of the most powerful ideology the most powerful currency you know, the the Indians didn't have the currency either, right? So it's power, you know, even the religions, right? Islam and Christianity, they're they're the most powerful religions for channeling political energy and, and aligning people's interests and and uh so what you have is is you know, an arc of history with powerful ideas, powerful technology eventually driving uh driving a succession. And um, and America is the result of that to date. Well, um, I you, you hinted at something, Michael, in your uh, comments a few minutes ago, where you were saying Rothbard sort of leaves you hanging, thinking was the whole thing a good idea, or would we have been better off? And I think this this I want to make that the the main topic of conversation of the next episode, because I think um, I mean I'll. I'll uh, you know the the tax that was imposed on the tea um, <laughs> that launched the revolution was what I think one and a half percent or two percent uh, on tea imports, which you know if you ask any person who's liberty minded, you know would you re- would you take a two percent tax on tea and get rid of the U.S. federal government's uh, <laughs> mountains of taxation regulation? I don't think there's any doubt. <laughs> where the question would go. So, uh, you know, the the case I think could be made that um, getting rid of uh, the king sounds nice in principle because you think, all right, we're all just going to be free. But uh, the monarchist in me will say that when you get rid of a king, you don't just end up with no king. You end up with a million little kings who are competing over short four-year terms to become kings. And then the difference is that when you had one king, he was there for many decades and he expected his children and his grandchildren to be there for centuries, generations after generation. And so he was invested in the well-being of the country into the future because he wanted it to be functional for his grandkids to steal or, or you know, to appropriate money from your grandkids, so you had incentive alignment. He wanted you to have healthy, prosperous grandkids, and you wanted to have healthy, prosperous grandkids. Whereas on the other hand, when you replace that king with 100 little kings, then each one of those kings is only going to get four years, or maybe eight, and then it's only four or eight years, and that's all the time he's got under the sun. And that's the time, you know, he's got to make hay while the uh, sun shines, as they say. He needs to try and get as much as he can, and it doesn't matter to him. The well-being of your grandchild is completely irrelevant to him because his grandchild is not likely going to be on the throne to be able to take taxes from your grandchild. So it is in his interest to milk the country dry as much as he can for four or eight years 
I'll look forward to discussing this subject with you in our next session. Yeah, I think uh, this is, this has been fascinating and, uh, you know, we're, we have another couple of hours on Thursday. So, uh, <laughs> any final thoughts before we break off? I, I, are you in favor of, of, of King George the third saving Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, you know, compared to some of the things that the glorious revolution has brought the U.S., I think I, I think you'd struggle to find somebody who would not take him over at least some of the U.S. presidents, wouldn't you? <laughs> my my final thought is is uh, the book's worth reading because because uh, America was an experiment in political economy. And if you're a scientist, a political scientist, you would always like to be able to implement a new idea. What if we had this economic system? What if we had communism? What if we had authoritarianism? What if we had capitalism? What if we had strong religion? What if we had a weak religion? What if we were tolerant of religions? What if we cooperated? What if we didn't? What if we traded? What if we did agriculture? And it's very difficult to run that experiment in a mature society because you're inheriting a thousand years of legacy. So you couldn't easily run that experiment, you know, in a canton of Switzerland or the middle of Austria at that time. But in, a, in America, what you had was a Stone Age culture receding and you were able to drop dozens of these experiments uh, into the middle of an energy-rich, fairly isolated uh, geography. And you were able to see their homogeneous uh, or organic evolution uh, without, without someone simply crossing the border and stamping them out with brute force in the first month. So if you're, if you're a political scientist and, or economist and you want to study what happens when what will happen if I tell people that they're not allowed to own any land well you know we know what happened like uh, everybody starved to death within a few months like you can literally see examples of political of economic dysfunction where everybody stops working and they all starve because the leader had a batshit stupid crazy economic model and so you, you have lots and lots of these examples. If this happens, that will happen. What will happen if you do this? Conceived in Liberty is the story of human behavior and how they react to so many different uh, political experiments. And so I think you can learn a lot by studying each one of them. And, you know, many of them end in the death of the instigator or the death of everybody or or extraordinary chaos and abuse and so i think it's a lot better to learn vicariously than it is to learn through your own experiences and this this was 200 of these 262 chapters but more than that hundreds and hundreds of experiments that end in the death and destruction of the idiot or the malefactor and everyone that was trapped in that economy with them. And so, so, you know, science is about trial and error, right? And human humanity has advanced through trial and error. And we take for granted 
the fact that we can create steel and we forget that there are probably 10,000 tries at it that failed and everybody died trying. You know, we take for granted you can eat that berry and we forget that the people that ate the other berries all died. And we take for granted that, that this bridge works and we forget that, you know, 8,000 other bridges collapsed and everybody died, you know. And so a lot of times we just take modernity for granted. But conceived in liberty is is uh, you know a book of experimental results saying if you do this this will happen if you do this this will happen if you do this this will happen and you get to see a thousand failed experiments right a, a thousand blowups and eventually you get to some amalgam which is. Uh, decent enough to get us where we are today. And if anything, it's valuable to the modern thinker because you can't really afford, you know, uh, to implement a catastrophic experiment without destroying your entire country or your family. If you, if you go to this place, right, go to Zimbabwe, go to Cuba, go to North Korea, it, you'll get to make that mistake once and then you're done, right? So, I just think this is valuable because Rothbard was truthful, unvarnished, right? Without an, he, he didn't have a pro statist agenda or a politicist agenda. He wasn't trying to whitewash history and tell you how everything turned out perfect. He wasn't defending anybody. Like as far as I can, you know, as I can see, right? There's, there's, uh, you know, the, uh, there aren't that many uh, heroes in this book. There's a lot of villains. There, there's a there's a number of people that tried to do the right thing and struggled. So I guess they're sort of the heroes. But but it's very rare in the modern world that you get to read a tome of all of the political economic experiments of humanity gone bad. And this is that tome and you can't design something beautiful and functional and stable unless you understand all the ways the machines break, right? And this is that book. And so I would just end with a thought that it's worthwhile for anybody that, that has aspirations to design something better or live a life or, or give advice. You ought to go back and read this one and, and, uh, and keep it in mind when your um when you're trying to inscribe your ego and your ideas on the world i agree i think it's a great book to read and i, I it certainly changed my perspective and and other people should read it as well excellent well we'll uh, pick up where we left off on thursday thank you so much for joining us yeah thanks for having us <laughs>